The scripture reading tonight is from Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The Word of the Lord. We know that our experience of many things isn't a very good indicator of the fullness of reality, right? Our senses are incredible. I love my senses. Thank you, eyes, ears, mouth. But they actually perceive only a tiny portion of physical reality. Many sounds, smells, certain spectrums of light are beyond the capacity of our senses. I think that it's helpful for us to be aware of this as we move through the world, especially when we're talking about areas where our senses are massively misleading. The deepest realities are hidden from the human senses, the physicists tell us, and they usually know what they're talking about. I'm bringing this up because of time, because Time is an important element in the scripture passage that Julie read this evening. And most of us, I certainly, live under the delusion, a delusion that is hard to shake, that time is linear, moving forward, that there's a distinct past, present, and future, but time is dependent on motion and gravity. You can't really accurately talk about time without talking about space. There's nothing universal or linear about time. And spatially, I guess, I don't really understand anything I'm trying to talk about. The past, present, and future exist at once, more than linearly. But even though physicists have been describing this for over a hundred years and Buddhists maybe for thousands of years, it's very hard for us to internalize this data. Or maybe I should speak for myself. My understanding is confined by the limitations of my senses and by my utterly inadequate grasp of quantum theory. Maybe Matthew was a little less confined by his functional sensory perceptions than I am. I don't know. But in chapter 24 of his book, 
He keeps switching between talking about the past, the present, and the future in a way that seems all jumbled up. Like at one point, he's talking about the destruction of the temple, which when he was writing had already happened, but he writes like it's in the future, and then he switches from talking about the past as if it's the future and starts really talking about what hasn't happened yet, about the end, the end of the world as we know it. I think it could be helpful, possibly hopeful, certainly perspective shifting to keep in mind that time is something almost more psychedelic than mundane, mind-blowing more than rote. What seems to me to be jumbled up in Matthew's little apocalypse might actually be a more accurate representation of this layered sort of reality that our senses don't perceive. And the church's seasons usher us into this layeredness, even though we can't comprehend it entirely. It's the first Sunday of Advent, and every year on this Sunday, Instead of focusing on the coming of Jesus as a baby in the manger in the first century AD, the church looks towards the second coming of Christ, is how it's often put, which is usually connected with the end of the world as we know it. Advent means the arrival of something momentous. The church spends four weeks looking toward this momentous thing, looking back, also forward, if those words are even appropriate to a nonlinear reality, towards God coming into the world. Then, now, forever, and at the end of time. Advent calendars don't seem very helpful. They get us waiting for the arrival of a date on a calendar, a contrivance, a contrivance humans, with our sensual limitations invented. But what we're hoping for, what we're waiting for, is something far more thick and substantial and all-encompassing and multidimensional than a date. We are waiting for God to come. Jesus says, watch and be ready. For of the day and hour no one knows, his point seems to be, you can't know. Maybe you can't understand. Don't think calendar. Think, how do you be? How do you act? Knowing God was, is, will be incarnate in the world. Live every moment like the end is near, whatever the end means. There's definitely a sense of urgency in this text. It's more life and death than laid back and cozy. I'm not sure if Jesus understood the space-time continuum. I mean, presumably God understands ultimate reality, even though human senses are incapable of apprehending it. But if God understands us, humans, God knows we need something concrete. If not comprehensible to us than at least something tactile, at least something we can touch or imagine with our brains the way they are. 
And so Jesus, in the midst of talking about all this apocalyptic eschatology, gives us a story, something our senses can relate to. He gives his hearers a story that they would be familiar with. The second coming, he says, the end will be like the days of Noah. Well, that's quite a story to pull out. I don't know how it felt to Matthew's generation, but I was like, wow, does this ever feel timely? I mean, the sea level is rising, the planet is going under. That's a very old story, Noah, one of the first in the Bible. Just five chapters after God creates the earth, God can already see how destructive the humans have turned out to be. God sees they are cruel and violent and corrupt. The grave grieves God deeply to see this. God aches with sorrow in God's heart, the text says. God always seems a little vulnerable to me in this Noah story. I mean, God made the humans after all as part of this complex creation and God thought it was a masterpiece, this creation. God loved it. God was really satisfied with the work. It seemed beautiful to God. But maybe God should have been a little more circumspect about the work. Been a little more careful or something, taken a little more time with it, because as it turns out, the humans were cruel and violent and corrupt. God brought them into being, loved them, thought they were great, but they turned out to be so destructive, and though it grieves God deeply, it seems like the best thing was to recognize it as a failed experiment and start over. But instead of destroying everything, God finds Noah, so the story goes. And God finds hope in Noah. So God enlists Noah to build an ark, which seems like a really huge ask, but also sort of small and futile on the face of planetary destruction. But Noah is willing to help God by building an ark. But that's not all. God asks Noah to go and find two of every kind of living creature, find them and bring them into the ark, and then once the flood comes and they're shut up inside, feed them and keep them alive. It'll be great to look at this story more when we get to it in the Creation Apocalypse lectionary, but for now, this is the story Jesus chooses to use as an example of what the people might grasp onto to understand their situation what they should do while they wait for the end, how they should be, how to watch and prepare. I think it's kind of gorgeous. It's also a little like, wow, that is a lot of responsibility. The story that Jesus points to is pretty much the opposite of the whole left-behind scenario that some of us encountered in our evangelical pasts. In that scenario, Jesus comes and sweeps away all his people in the end to take them to heaven and leaves the unfaithful people behind to suffer through the tribulations on earth. But in the story of Noah, it's the unfaithful that gets swept away, swept away by the flood. And it's the faithful 
that are left behind to do a lot of hard work. Build an ark, save the species, nurture the animals, plant a vineyard once they finally landed. That is the covenant God establishes with Noah. Some religious believers cling to the idea to the detriment of the created world that the faithful don't need to worry about the climate crisis because they believe Jesus is going to sweep in at the end of time and take all the believers away. That's God's plan. And you prepare for that by making sure that you are personally saved, as in born again, according to this belief system, by saying a prayer where you ask forgiveness for your sins and invite Jesus into your heart. That belief system fits pretty well with North American values. It's a bit individualistic. You don't have to worry so much about the collective climate crisis because God is going to take care of you. The ones that remain on the dying earth will have had their chance, but they will have refused to submit to God. There's an urgency in this scenario to get the unfaithful to accept Jesus in their hearts, but there's not so much an urgency to take care of the dying earth. That way of thinking is contrary to what Jesus says here in Matthew. The people Matthew's writing to had already experienced enormous destruction in their lives at the hands of the Roman Empire. Their religious institution, their temple, their city, Jerusalem, had all been reduced to rubble. They were defeated, it seemed, by the power of death in the world, the empire. The way Josephus, a historian from the time, describes this crisis, men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who begged for mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate violence. The places which had been adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now desolate in every way. All the trees had been cut down. Josephus says the empire had laid all signs of beauty to waste. This sounds familiar, hopeless. The empire, the power of death and destruction is relentless. And how do you have hope in the midst of such catastrophe? Maybe Matthew's generation believed that God would protect them from that, but that wasn't what was happening. Jesus acknowledges how devastating it was, is, and will be and then he points to this coming, like there's definitely more to come. It might have seemed to everyone that hope had been ridiculous, become ridiculous, because God was absent. But Jesus says, watch, be ready. Not like keep your eyes on the sky with your hands folded, but build an ark is the metaphor he chooses. Make rooms in it and coat them with pitch. Consider all the species. Gather them and what they need to eat. Protect them and feed them. Keep them alive. Christ will come again, but don't look it on that calendar for that. Jesus is certain of this. His followers will be the ones working in the field, growing Climate change resistant crops, maybe, or shutting down the fossil fuel industry, or 
laboring down at the border to keep children out of the cages that empire builds, or writing legislation to protect the planet, or protesting legislation. I mean, there are endless ways to build an ark. Jesus indicates over and over again in the Gospels that there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of hungry, thirsty, broken captives, and he needs us. Apocalyptic, the mode that Matthew's writing in in our passage, is a way of writing that reveals there's a struggle between God and the powers of death. And the entire cosmos is enslaved to these powers. That may be a revelation on one level, but it seems obvious, doesn't it? We are all going to die. So is the planet. But even every moment of life, death and deathiness are all around, everywhere threatening to paralyze us with hopelessness and fear. To be Christ's followers is to participate in the struggle against the powers of death. The faithful are a part of the coming of God into the world. It's what it means to be a Christian. Not that you're going to be swept away to heaven, but that you participate in this struggle. You are included in the resistance. What an honor. You know, really. Maybe even what a joy. What could be more life-giving than to be part of that resistance? Jesus isn't asking people to wait piously, keeping their hands clean and their ducks in a row to be rescued. He's trying to enlist people to resist the power of death. That's what God's doing and what God has done and what God will keep doing, defeating death. Death seems really freaking powerful, certainly in terms of what human perception is capable of perceiving. It might even seem like death is more powerful than God. But the stories in scripture proclaim over and over again that death will be defeated. The Christian life isn't about a carefree, prosperous, victorious existence, not at all. That's more like the lie of capitalism and empire. Our call as humans participating with God in the struggle against the powers of death is to make humanity more humane. I wonder if God's other creatures don't have quite as much work to do. It's a lot. But we get to take part in the liberation of the cosmos from the powers of death and sin. It's so much fuller and multidimensional and thick than some personal little drama of salvation. I think maybe things get distorted in religion because it's really way more advantageous to the powers that be if people believe this whole thing is about their personal salvation. Like, do you know what will happen to you if you die tonight? How is your personal walk with Jesus? If we're enlisted in that plan, none of that threatens the powers of death. The powers that be aren't threatened by a religion where people are caught up in their personal morality, ricocheting between shame and grandiosity, worrying about their selves. The powers, they're threatened when you take them on. 
When you look death in the face and keep making rooms in the ark. The powers are threatened when you look death in the face and love someone anyway. Jesus wants us in his resistance. Death is not the last word. This promise enables us to act in the face of what appears hopeless, to act in the face of death. I'm pretty sure that you know how to participate in that resistance, because I see you doing it all the time. I mean, we aren't all Greta Thunberg, but maybe some of you are. I know we all can, we all do act in the face of death. We love in the face of death. Even when the destructive forces seem to be winning. Maybe you buy something from the mercy market instead of on Amazon.com or buy everyone carbon credits for Christmas or don't buy anything at all or plant a tree or sell a car. We feed our children even though death is on the horizon. Sometimes we manage to feed even more hungry people. In spite of all appearances, death is not going to win. Don't be paralyzed. You are free. You are part of the liberation. And God is in it with us. 